Welcome to another episode of the Untold Civil War podcast. It's full steam ahead for Season 3. You may remember me doing an episode on the GAR, a post-war veteran organization for Union soldiers, with Ben Frail a while back. Now we are addressing the Confederate side of things, with Andrew Lips. Before we do that, I just want to mention that with our bigger goals this year, I want to of course thank our sponsors. Civil War Trails is the greatest outdoor museum in the U.S., and actually physically marks, with signs, the places often covered in this podcast. So it's great to work with them to preserve untold Civil War history. Please check them out in the links in the show notes, and they will give you all the tools you need when you're embarking on your own untold Civil War adventure. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, The Badge Maker. Now, I know for a fact that many of you, my reenacting friends, my reenacting listeners, went to uh, Remembrance Day last year in November and had a great time. I saw footage. I wish I could have been there. What I'm very impressed with is that many of you are wearing core badges. And hopefully, if you're a listener of this podcast, you bought those core badges from the badge maker. And if you were standing around without a core badge on your uniform, well, look, let's not do a repeat of that, all right? So definitely go check the show notes. Go rectify this. Go get your prescription from the... uh, badge maker so he can take care of this and rectify this because you don't want to make that embarrassing mistake again so please uh don't be left out check out the link in the show notes and now fix bayonets move towards those cops of trees it's time to engage some untold civil war welcome to the untold civil war podcast i'm here with andrew lips of wartime collectibles he's also the author of history after defeat the United Confederate Veterans in Post-War America, which I have a copy of right here. Wonderful book. On the show, we've had a couple episodes on the GAR and the SUVCW. So this episode on the Confederate side of things has been long overdue. So I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your book and this in- very interesting topic. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. an interesting journey writing the book. Well, let's just kick it off here. When did the Civil War bug first bite you. We all have that story. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I grew up in Illinois, and I grew up on John Wayne, Sands of Iwo Jima, and reading about a bridge too far, and I was a World War II history buff, and to me, the Civil War was ancient history. I had no interest in it at all, and when I was 25, I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and standing on the battery there, looking across the, the, the open bay and bathroom, the harbor there, you just, you can't help but just feel the history that's occurred there and just feel just the intensity of all that has happened in that part of the world. And shortly after I moved there and felt, got that interest started and started picking up books by Bruce Catton and so on, I bought a medal and it was a 70, it was a medal named to a man in the 75th Gettysburg reunion. And this, the, that was a federally funded reunion it took place in 1938, and it was both Confederate and Union veterans were invited. And it hit me, 1938, my dad was eight years old. And later on, I found out that one of his friends was a Boy Scout that attended the reunions, and, this, and this, the Boy Scout troops were there helping veterans. And all of a sudden, 1938 didn't seem that far away. And I realized that the history was not ancient history, and I've been a Civil War enthusiast and interested in the history of the Civil War ever since. Well, just on that note, I'd like to ask you, you know, because you have been collecting for a long time, 
I often talk about how it's very important to go to Civil War battlefields to actually get a real idea of what our ancestors went through on those battlefields. But also, what about the effect of holding those items that belong to those um, guys who served in the military or girls who served um, as nurses and so on? What is it like holding those items, and what does that do to help tell the story? Oh, definitely helps tell the story. Having something in hand and knowing that it was a veteran that carried it, wore it to a reunion, had it during the war, makes a big difference. It brings something alive. And when you can research the name, and this is something, this is not a veteran's piece, but this is something I just recently acquired. This is an Ambrotype image of a Confederate soldier of wartime. Beautiful image. And I have his wife's Bible. And the Bible has inside. She's written her name and the date in 1859 when she received the Bible. She has put a newspaper clipping from her father's funeral and from her wedding announcement on engagement. And you can't probably see it very well, but there's a piece of thread that has been woven through the page. And the formal history is that that's a piece of thread from her then fiance's uniform. Wow. Just again, having a name to it and having that connection just really brings this stuff alive. And again, makes it so it's not ancient history. It's somebody's grandfather, somebody's father, and close to you. Close to you. It, it really does b- bring the point home when you hold something so personal like that. And, and going from there, one of the things that we're very used to today is maybe you know going to the local VFW or American Legion, right, and seeing our veterans today uh, and talking to them. But there were veteran organizations for Confederate veterans, right? Can you discuss those groups that were formed? Well, when the war ended, veterans groups began on both sides began to meet immediately afterward. They shared the kinship, the bond of having been in warfare. Some of the groups were veterans groups of cavalrymen, some groups from particular divisions, uh, men that participated in Gettysburg and Pickett's Charge. And these were both Union and Confederate groups. But the Union groups pretty much grew in mass beginning right after the war and had a lot of funding and a lot of backing. These men had veterans' pensions to help them out. They had a system, a federal government system, that while it wasn't perfect, did provide them with health care and things like that, soldiers' benefits. The GAR was founded in 1866, immediately after the war. The southern states didn't have that, well, that frankly, that luxury of, of, of being able to meet on a big, on a large-scale basis. They met locally, and there were organizations that met beginning immediately after the war, but they were, it was a devastated landscape. They didn't have any backing from their state government to help them with finances, with veterans' pensions, health care, housing, veterans' housing, things like that. So it was a while before the veterans' organizations really got taken off in the South because they were busy rebuilding the nation, rebuilding and trying to, trying to frankly, learn how to farm again and get their food and eat. And these were important things. They were, they were rebuilding an economy. So it wasn't until the 1890s that the Confederate veterans' organizations really took off. But yes, there were organizations on both sides. When the uh, Confederate veteran organizations formed, were their camps uh, located only in the South, or did those camps move as you know veterans maybe moved westward or to other countries, migrated? There were veterans camps, of course, in each of the southern states, with most states having, depending on the size of the states, but when you have California, or excuse me, South Carolina and Georgia, you had multiple camps in those states. 
There were states as, the, as they went west, for instance, there were a number of states that were just designated as Indian territories because these western states were not, were not, western areas were not states yet, so there were camps in the western territories as well. And of course, there were veterans that retired and, and moved with family or whatever and wound up in northern states. So there were Confederate veterans, associated, Confederate veterans groups in northern states as well. Not so many, and predominantly what you saw in the northern states was UDC, United Daughters of the Confederacy chapters. There was a very strong UDC chapter in the state of New York, and there was a very big kinship, and we don't think about it today, and they make jokes or whatever, but there was a strong kinship between the UDC in Virginia and the Southern Veterans in Virginia and the UDC and United Confederate Veterans Groups in New York, and they assisted each other and helped each other out quite a bit. Uh, just out of curiosity, do we know how these veteran groups got along with each other, like the Union veteran groups and the Confederate veteran groups? There, was, there were problems, there were issues, but it really wasn't the animosity that we kind of see sometimes today or we think about today. Um, these men fought, and even if they fought against each other, there is a kinship to having been in warfare, to having been in combat, and they respected each other for that. When the first Gettysburg first large-scale Gettysburg reunion took place that had both northern and southern troops there, there was a reenactment of Pickett's Charge. Basically, the men just, the Yankees lined up at the cops of trees on one side of the Pickett's Charge in Gettysburg and the, and the Confederate troops, the Confederate old men. This was in 1893, the first one. These older men went walking across Pickett's Charge field, and when they, people didn't really know what was going to happen when they hit the wall, when they hit the cops of trees. And they, they, some people expected there to be fights and fist fights, but there wasn't. It was tears. It was crying. It was shaking hands and hugging. These men were born with over. They were glad they survived, and they shared, shared times with each other. There were questions. One of the big issues was flags. And we talk about the Confederate flag today, and it's part of, part of what's in, you know, you can probably pick up about any newspaper today and see some article on the Confederate flag. Well, that question was, was happening then as well because the GAR did not want the Confederate flag to be displayed at the reunions, but it was a different way of looking at it. You could earn the Medal of Honor during the Civil War for capturing a Confederate flag. That's how important a flag was. We didn't look at it as a symbol of the South or a symbol of slavery. It was a symbol of the enemy forces, the opposing troops. So when you fought for a flag, that was an important thing. And so the Union forces, the Union officers said, we capture these flags. We're not giving them back, and we're not letting you fly them. But it was mostly the, the upper ranks of the GAR and the UCB that had this debate. The enlisted men in the lower ranks, they just wanted to meet and they didn't care. And if you want to see how it turned out, look at pictures of the Gettysburg reunions and the, and the blue, what they call blue-gray reunions, where both the North and the South attended, and you will see Confederate flags flying over the, over the tents of the Southern veterans. And the animosity, that part ended, and many of the flags were returned to the South, and gratefully done. Fantastic. Um, it's amazing to see something like that, basically really healing those wounds of the war, the veterans doing that, uh, organizing such events to do that. Could you talk about a little bit, a little bit more about the types of events these organizations set up and, and the purpose overall? Was it to, like you mentioned, that Confederate veterans may have not got a lot of government help? Was it to bring them together so they could help each other? Um, what exactly was their purpose? The initial founding of both, both the JR and the UCB, but it was particularly important with United Confederate Veterans, was to aid and assist other veterans, the veterans' widows and the veterans' children. They put together, you look around, and most every state had Confederate veterans' homes. 
and these originally were for elderly and disabled Confederate veterans to live in, and they lived there free. Uh, supported, most of them were supported by either the state or by the United Daughters of the Confederacy or by both. As the veterans aged, these Confederate veterans' homes were allowed the widows in, and eventually, uh, I know the one in Columbia, South Carolina, eventually wound up nieces and nephews of veterans were able to live at the Confederate veterans' home in Columbia, and it did not fold until, I believe, 1923 or so. And then there were others that stayed active until the 50s, uh, and again, they had the widows and the veterans, and because there was no, again, in the South, there was no centralized government that had pensions and all, and to begin with, the United Confederate, the Confederate veteran was not given a pension by the United States government because he was a member of an opposing force. 1910, all that changed, which is also where you coincidentally, the problems with false Confederate veterans, which is an interesting story on its own. But the main purpose of the veterans organizations was to assist them. As the time passed, the uh, Confederate groups also started writing and making what their goal was to make sure that their history was told. And they wanted it told. It wasn't so much revisionism, but they wanted an authentic history told. Now, I will say that their version of an authentic history was pretty much to ignore slavery. Now, you had the war, you had major Southern leaders and some of the racist leaders, and, and it's the reality of life that slavery was a white supremacist organization and founded on. But these, these groups didn't so much try to whitewash slavery or try to justify slavery within the Confederate veterans, but they kind of ignored the issue. But they wanted to make sure that, that uh, oh, the way they looked at Lee, they wanted to make sure Lee was not seen as a defeated general. He was, they wanted to make sure that people understood in their view, and you can go both ways on this, but in their view, the North won because the North had too many more men and too much more manpower and too much more equipment. And their version of their view of General Grant was that any idiot could have led an army that it was that large because it eventually would have crushed Lee. It just simply was that big a machine that there was no way that Grant could lose. They weren't going to give Grant or Sherman or any of them any, uh, any props as good generals. They wanted to make sure that, the, that the, the title of general went to Lee and Jackson and Thompson and Thomas and people like Johnson, Stonewall Jackson. This was, this was the main purpose there. Right, right. When I think back on uh, like previous episodes that I've had on the GAR, we talk about some of the more prominent members who went on, members of the GAR who went on to do big things in you know cultural, economic, even political positions. Were there many members of the uh, United Confederate Veterans who went on to obtain political, uh, you know, high political status or um, commercial uh, business status? Yes, after the war. The North and the South became pretty much Republican in the North and Democrat in the South. And most of the Democratic congressmen, representatives, uh, politicians that you saw co going to Washington and the legislature and Congress were ex-Confederates. Now, there was a, you know, the United States had to sign an oath of allegiance. But other than that, there was no, there were very few punitive actions taken against them. Uh, Wirtz, the, the commander of Andersonville prisoners prison was was the only one hanged for war crimes and there were there were it was a move against Jefferson Davis in Bedford Force for war crimes. These never came to fruition, they never went through. So most of the politicians that you see in post-war South are Democrats and they are ex-Confederates. An interesting role that happened was was by the time of the Spanish-American War, you had uh, I believe four ex-Confederate generals who were serving in the United States Army. And four that served in uh, Spanish-American War, Fitzhugh Lee, 
Joseph General Cavalry General Joseph Lee, both held commanding officer positions in the um, in the Spanish-American War. And there's a story told about Joe Wheeler that whenever the uh, whenever the battle would get raging, he would he would forget where he was and he would start yelling to his men, "Shoot the Yankees! Go after the Yankees! Charge the Yankees!" Talking about Cuban forces. You you talked a little bit about it, but maybe we can revisit it a little bit more. Is about how these organizations are relevant today. If you look at the history of the GAR, the, the Union Veterans Groups, they had a major impact on the United States. The Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. It was a holiday that was originally set up by the GAR to honor the veterans. The next five presidents after after Lincoln or after Johnson, excuse me, were all GAR members. And it was very important, but it was something that became past history. After the veterans, after the last reunion in 1948, you really don't hear anything about the Union veterans. But the Confederate veterans, they're, especially if you live in the South, but the Confederate veterans, their presence is still here everywhere. And we just, whenever you discuss the flying of the Confederate flag, whether you agree with it or disagree with it or whatever your position is, it is in the news. And that flag is part of that history. If you walk downtown, I live in a small town of Camden, South Carolina, and there are five memorials to the Civil War in this little town. UDC Memorial, memorials to the Confederate generals from this town, and so on. It's in the news. And in today's, today's political climate of Black Lives Matter and things like that going on, it's important to understand these roles. It's important not to understand—I to, to, want to make sure that the war was about slavery. And that's, you know, it's not the only point of the war. And yes, there were other things. But the reality is if slavery were not, uh, if slavery had not existed, continued to exist, war would not have happened. So when you're talking about American history and you're talking about race in American history, you have to talk about the Confederacy and you have to understand where they came from, whether you believe that, whether it's someone like John C. Calhoun, who was a rabid racist, Robert E. Lee, who was a fantastic general and gentleman, and in no way that I can see a racist or white supremacist, but he was a Southerner, and that was important to him. And these different views, it's important to understand them. And the average Confederate soldier, the gentleman whose Bible I showed you, he came back to South Carolina after the war and retired, was a, was a farmer, and, you know, lived his life in South Carolina the way that, you know, any retired man or any gentleman farmer would. And so understanding how how these men felt and how these men, how their history wove into the future of America is important. Uh, knowing whenever the monuments are coming down now in the United States, most every one of these monuments has a, has a uh, it's always sort of an aside in the news. Most of them were buried with, were built with a time capsule underneath them. And those time capsules tell you what's important about the time, what they felt was important, part of the history. Almost every one of them will have something to do with Robert E. Lee in it, a lock of his hair, a shoulder strap, a part of his uniform, a button off one of his coats, because Lee was so deified after the war. Most everyone will have something from the Revolution, like a piece of Continental script or a Continental Army button, a section of a, of a Revolutionary War flag. The Southerners wanted to make sure that that part of their history was not forgotten as well. The role they played in the founding of America, and that that was the Revolution. So this is all relevant today. But another part of understanding the history of these organizations is, as you talked about earlier, that kind of sparked your interest in the Civil War is when you hold these, these items. How do 
collecting those medals and badges help you better understand uh, the United Confederate Veterans? Well, you can look at the badges, and there's, they will all tell different things. For one thing, most of them are going to be dated. So you can look at the timeline of reunions. You can look at the timeline of when these happen, and they're geographic. You can tell where they happened. If it's a, a badge from a, you know, from a reunion that happened in South Carolina in 1905, and you can look at reunions from other areas. Things that I find fascinating looking at collecting both GAR and UCB badges and medals is the quality difference. Because as I touched on before, the South was rebuilding. The South was, was rebuilding from a from a losing a war and having their economy destroyed from Sherman's march from Atlanta to the north, march to the king. So whenever you look at a GAR medal, the majority of them, a lot of them are multi-piece metal badges. They're attractive. They're well-made. And you look at many of the UCB badges, a lot of them are printed ribbons. Let me again grab an example of something. This is not, this is a... Uh, Reunion ribbon from Camp Sumter. Camp Sumter was a UCB camp in, in Charleston, South Carolina. It's dated, it's from an anniversary, 37th anniversary, held, took place in 1903. This was a very important reunion. There were books written about it. They did speeches, but the ribbon is just a simple printed ribbon. And attached to it was an original Confederate $10 note. And they have printed on the note the information about the reunion. And it's a little hard for me to read it, so I'm not even going to try. But they printed on the back the meaning behind the note. And it says, this is a worthless piece of currency once represented our country. Now it's just a monument and a souvenir. But this is the kind of stuff that they use for their reunions because they didn't have a foundry that could make strike badges and make fancy, well-made pieces and have engraved and such. Now, they were examples of that, but they're few and far between. Most of the Confederate reunion pieces are similar to this. It's a beautiful piece. It is, it is a wonderful bit of history, and it tells so much about what the time period was like. You can also see, even if the reunion had nothing to do with a particular uh, Confederate personality, such as Lee, many of the badges will be centered around Nathan Bedford Forrest, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, because these men, again, I used the word before, but these men were deified by the South. There was no, uh, Longstreet caught a lot of grief after the Civil War because he questioned Robert E. Lee's Pickett's charge. And Pickett himself questioned him, but Pickett was not vocal about it, although he, he obviously felt the same way. The line about you know, the division's been destroyed, you know, this, this, this is how he felt after the war, but he didn't openly say much, and he died shortly after. Longstreet was critical of Lee. Now, Lee was his friend, and they were close, and Lee, was, Lee understood that. But there were a lot of Confederate leaders that did not like Longstreet because he made these comments. However, whenever he showed up at a reunion, he was invited to a re the Gettysburg reunion, the first one, first large Gettysburg reunion, and, and he wasn't going to show up. But they convinced him to do it, and when he did, the Confederate veterans gave him a round of applause, standing ovation. He was invited onto the podium, and they, you know, they went on with that. But if you look at these ribbons; many of them will honor Jefferson Davis. Um, it was important, again, going back to telling that story and telling the Confederate history the way they wanted it told. It was important to the United Confederate veterans that we didn't see Lee as a loser, 
Stonewall Jackson did not lose war, that Jefferson Davis did not lose the Civil War. It's important for them to understand that the, that the reason the Union won wasn't because they had God on their side or their cause was right. It was because they were, it was a David and Goliath battle and Goliath won. Have no idea what to get that Civil War buff you love for their birthday? Look no further than our sponsor, Military Images Magazine. I myself subscribe to the magazine, and it's amazing the variety of images that are published within. As someone who wishes but can't buy all the Civil War images on the market, it is still awesome to get access to them through the magazine. In the last editions, they shared images of Union Hussars and the famous Red-Legged Devils. There was even an article on one of the most recent fake images being sold on the market, all invaluable information for a collector or researcher. Use the link in the show notes to learn more. And, you know, you, you've shown me all these wonderful pieces. And, you know, I'm sort of a young collector. I'm, I'm getting into collecting myself. So I'd love to pick your brain about the hobby of, of collecting these artifacts. Can you talk a little bit about maybe address the state of the hobby? Um, do you have any tips for new collectors? That sort of thing. It's an interesting time to be in the hobby of collecting military, of collecting any of it, whether it's Civil War, GAR, UCB. If you had asked me how, how healthy the hobby was, say three years ago, I would have had a slightly negative in, in comment on it because as my sons have pointed out to me, their friends don't collect anything. When I'm 59 years old, when I was a kid, everybody collected something. You collected stamps, you collected baseball cards, you collected record albums, you collected something. It was in our, it was almost a gene, you know, that everybody collected and that has sort of passed. And every once in a while, you'll have something that, that will like the, movie Gettysburg, and all of a sudden there's a boom in collecting Civil War. Or when Saving Private Ryan came out, there was a boom in collecting D-Day memorials, D-Day and World War II European theater material. But those were few and far between. But the COVID has made a change in collecting. It has really brought it out, and it has really aided the collecting hobby. Um, and I think you see a lot of people that are homebound, whether they want to be or not. They're social distancing, so they're getting books out. They're getting the tablets out to read. They're getting their tablets out to look at websites, to bid in auctions, and you are seeing a great rise in collectors and it's and, and in collecting military of all brands. And I talk to friends. I don't travel too much anymore, but I talk to friends that are still doing the shows on a regular basis. And then once the show started back up again, just fairly recently, they're great. They are just really doing well. There's a lot of interest in them because people are excited. Excuse me. People are excited about getting out and doing things. As far as thing, new items coming to the market, yes. And that's what's exciting about that. Again, give me just a second. This is a Confederate cavalry sword. It's made by Keenansville Armory in North Carolina. It's a pretty typical of what a Confederate sword displays with a single wire wrap, single leather, no, no no ricasso to it, very simply made. The, the scabbard is, is just a folded piece of metal that's seen here. Nowhere nearly the quality of a Union-made 1860 cavalry sword, but a rare sword and certainly a competent weapon for the cavalrymen in the South. And this came out of a house in Florence, South Carolina about two months ago. And it was in their attic. They don't know who in the family had it, but it's been sitting in that attic for 100 and some years now, 148. And so this stuff does come, and it happens in the, uh, a friend of mine in Oneida, New York, just recently came up with a Confederate sword, 
you know, night in New York. And apparently, and he brought God, picked it up out of a house, estate sale with some Union cavalry gear. And apparently the Union cavalryman brought the sword home when he came home from the war. So just like German artifacts that were brought home from by a World War II veteran, these things are in attics and these things are findable. And it's a rescue. Um, this is, to me, this is an important piece of history. I'm not honoring any particular individual. I'm not honoring the cause of the South. But I am telling you, using this to tell, help tell the story of the Civil War. Part of that story is, as I've touched, the difference between the economies. And this, again, this when you read about Kenansville Armory, it tells the story of production during the Civil War, wartime manufacturing. And not only do I own this and I got lucky and I was able to buy this and I'm thrilled to have this and so on, but it's a rescue. It's saving this item from obscurity, saving this item from having disappeared because if it had been in that attic much longer, wouldn't be much left of it or somebody would have just said, oh, that's junk and thrown it away. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a Harper's. I don't know if you can see this or not. This is a Harper's Ferry musket, 1840s. Would have been carried during the Mexican War, but and it was pretty much obsolete by the time of the Civil War for the Union forces to carry anything like this, but the Southerners needed weapons, so they were still carrying things like this. This one came out of a plantation house that is now in absolute ruins. Somebody found it about a year ago in the plantation house. You can see where it has been repaired. The stock had broken at some point, and it's an old repair. It's wartime. And they used the sap at the ring off an artillery shell to make a band and rivet it in place to, to fix the broken stock. If you had had this in the north, they would have thrown the rifle away and gotten a new one. But the south did not have that luxury of doing that they needed to repair these things that's a local recent find well that just shows um exactly what you were saying that these items do help interpret the story of the civil war because you know when you see those personal items you actually understand the real lack of uh industrial might that the south had that they actually had to take the time to repair their weapons you know and you can read that in a in a textbook but when you actually physically hold something and see it, you know, it really brings yeah. that home. He pretty much felt like he was going to take his rifle with him. The Yankee was going to turn back in to the armory. The Southern soldier was going to carry it home. So he's got his initial carved into the butt of the gun. Again, it's a different outlook. It's a different way of looking at your position as a soldier in the war. But it does. It tells a story. And having that in hand illustrates the the economic disparity in the needs of the South more than just reading about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, I'm kind of like new into the collecting space, but do you have any advice for new collectors? And really, uh, should collectors really be worried about, you know, fakes out there? Are there a lot of fakes? Yes. Well, definitely collect. The first thing is, I would say is, is collect what you like and like what you collect. Find an area that interests you, whether it's name metals, whether it's South Carolina, a particular state, whether it's Union, Confederate, um, and specialize in that area a little bit because you can branch out later, but you'll get that knowledge, you'll get that understanding. Deal with people that you trust. You know, yes, there's always the estate sale find and the garage sale find, and you hope for that kind of thing, and, but sometimes that can be a problem as well. But when you're dealing with dealers or other collectors, make sure you trust the person you're dealing with and that they stand behind what they're selling because yes they the and the biggest crop of confederate fakes came out in the early 1960s with the 100th anniversary and you get a confederate belt buckle that was made in 1962 and was worn by a reenactor for 40 years 
it's going to look pretty darn good at this point. It's, you know, it's already 60 years old and it's got field wear and, you know, some of my friends' reenactor uniforms are just dead ringers. And at that point in time, they were using a lot of original stuff because you could find an infield for $75 in 1960. You know, so they were using that kind of stuff and carrying it. And if they carved their initials into it, turned it into an identified Confederate infield, then, you know, it's sort of hard to tell the difference. But but know what you're looking at and trust them. And there are great websites, there's great information online, but there's also good books, there's excellent books uh, that have been published for years. So make use of all these resources when you're collecting and buying and make use of your friends' understanding and knowledge as well. One thing I've heard, and I don't know if you agree th- about this or disagree or, or if you've heard it as well, is uh, buy the item, not the story. Yes, definitely. And you'll see more of the story with Civil War stuff than you do with other things. If, Somebody hands me a bayonet and says, this was this came off Normandy Battlefield. I'm going to say, give me Providence. But if somebody hands you a bayonet and says, this came off Gettysburg, most people just go, oh, okay. <laughs> and they tend to accept right. it. But if you're going to pay a premium for it, or if you're going to use it for a display and identify it as such, make sure you are buying the, not just the story behind it, but buying the item as well. I can tell you that that rifle came out of a plantation house in South Carolina, but you want to look at that rifle and inspect it anyway and understand it from that point. I can't prove it's Confederate carry. It has all the earmarks of a Confederate carry, but I can't prove that. If it had a JS anchor Confederate marking on it, that would be a different story. And that's the kind of thing that you want to look for. You know, thank you for giving us that wisdom. I really appreciate that. And of course, when people want to learn more about your collecting and of course, get a copy of your book, where can they go to do that? Well, go to my website, wartimecollectibles.com, find the website, and you can access a way to buy the book. You can buy the book through Amazon as well. If you have an account and just prefer to use that, and I would be happy to send signed editions to anybody that requests one. And it was exciting to put the book out, and it was a labor of love. So I appreciate everybody that's purchased them and every all the feedback I've gotten on the book. You know, I have a copy and I've read it and it's a fantastic book. And I would say uh, I've also tried to get some collectibles from you, some relics. Of course, I'm a little I'm a little um, slow on the trigger there. So I'm going to have to get a little bit better at that. But uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I've enjoyed this and the opportunity to be on your show. I hope you enjoyed that episode while sipping on some hot tea, prepping dinner, trying to appear sober in front of the provost marshal awaiting sentencing during your court-martial, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Quick thank you to Robert Hartwig for his editing skills. On this episode, we were joined by not only my pets, but also Mr. Lip's pet bird. We in the Civil War community are quite eccentric, but Hartwig was able to correct the audio. For more of his solutions, please check the link in the show notes. Also, check out the new website. On there, you will see all the new wares we have for sale, including Civil War relics, and show merch. You can also become a sponsor on Patreon and have your Civil War business advertised on the show. So please check that opportunity out in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.